Imagine knowing exactly what your students are learning and exactly which steps you need to take next. Join us in Down With The Reading Quiz to craft meaningful and productive formative assessments that move away from gotcha moments of basic recall and toward assessing what your students actually can do. In this 30-minute free masterclass, we'll share three powerful assessment keys that work for any novel at any time of the year. Head to shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to sign up, and we'll also send you a free workbook to keep track of all your notes. Once again, that's shop.bravenewteaching.com slash masterclass to nail formative assessments forever. Hey, Amanda. Hey, Marie. What are you up to later? Want to join me for happy hour? I'm all in. And guess what's amazing? Our listeners and friends of the podcast can also join us because Brave New Teaching Happy Hour has officially launched. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. We are officially hanging out a little bit longer after school with an extended extra private podcast feed just for you. Yes. Members of Happy Hour get extra 15 minutes of the podcast, give or take, because you know us, we run a little bit long. It's just kind of how we are. But if you would like to get in on this Happy Hour action, please join us. It is only $5 a month. Head to curriculumrehab.com slash happy hour and get yourself signed up because when you're there, Amanda, tell our friends what we do every month for our Happy Hour members. I think my favorite part is coming up with a new free resource for our listeners every month. And then we pretty much break down that resource and how to use it. We also like to have guests on to do extended episodes and even Q&A that's just for you about that resource. It's really exclusive and super private just for you. So if you are like us and you like hanging out, you like chit-chatting about all things that are teaching, teacher life, and everything under that umbrella, join us for happy hour and we will see you there. Bye. Bye. Before we dive into today's episode, we wanted to tell you guys about a little opportunity we have for you. We are running a little giveaway contest sort of a thing. We are going to be giving away one free 30-minute call a month with us, your hosts of Brave New Teaching. We want to talk to you guys about whatever it is that you want to talk about, whether it's curriculum, lesson design, what's going on in your classroom, classroom management. If you just want to pick our brains about an idea or an issue or something like that, we want to talk to you. So we are going to be giving away to one listener a month, every single month, a free call. 30 minutes, we get to chit-chat one-on-one. It's going to be great. Amanda, will you please tell our friends how they can enter? It's so easy. I just need you guys to head over to the Apple Podcasts uh, app, leave us a review, take a quick screenshot, and then just share that screenshot on social media. If you could tag us at Brave New Teaching and use the hashtag Brave New Teaching, that would be super because then we can find it and then we know that you have entered. This is going to be so great. I can't wait to just listen to the things that you guys want to talk about and go for it. Absolutely. So once again, just follow those quick steps, head to Apple podcasts, write your review, screenshot it, and then post it on social media. Make sure you tag us at Brave New Teaching and use the hashtag Brave New Teaching so that we can find you. And at the end of each month, we will be picking our winner. And then the contest will start all over again the next month. So thank you so much. We can't wait to chat with you. Let's get into the episode. Well, hello, and welcome back to Brave New Teaching. Today's episode, friends, 
is, okay, we know we always say like, oh, we have such a special episode for you today. Everyone really is. We do put our heart and soul into every episode of this podcast. Today's episode is extra long because we have not just one, but two individuals who we are interviewing. We are talking about inquiry, which we all know is one of our favorite things to talk about. It is the keystone of our curriculum rehab course. Amanda actually has quite a bit of academic experience in inquiry and inquiry-based curriculum. Amanda, do you want to talk a little bit about today's episode? Well, I would just encourage you, well, first of all, Hello. I'm already ready to jump into this intro. Um, I'm on fire about this topic, but I would say that this episode is um, not only long, but it's definitely like a medium step on the scale of if you're introducing yourself to inquiry instruction and inquiry-based curriculum for the first time, maybe don't start with this one. Or if you do start with this one, be patient because we kind of do a little bit of back and forth work to get you back to the practical side of this too. So we're talking today to two experts in this field, um, but we have prior episodes about essential questions and things like that that I'll link in the show notes if you want a place to start before you get here, um, because today we're talking to two experts. We're talking to Jeffrey Wilhelm out of Boise State University and his colleague, friend, and teacher, Christopher Butts, and these two just basically take us on a whirlwind adventure through the ups, downs, and experiences of teaching through inquiry. And they really kind of walk us through the book that they've just put out about inquiry and um, the way that they frame it through what they call apprenticeship. And so cognitive apprenticeship, excuse me. So, you know, Marie and I want to introduce you a little bit to the individuals that are going to be here, um, Jeff and Chris themselves, and then we're just going to hop right into it. So Marie, why don't you introduce us to Jeff first? I will. So Jeffrey Wilhelm is Distinguished Professor of English Education at Boise State University, like Amanda said, and he's the founding director of the Maine and Boise State Writing Projects. You guys, he has authored and co-authored 41 41 books about literacy, teaching, and learning. He's won quite a few different awards. He is absolutely an expert in this field. And hearing him talk, it's, it's like I'm back in college and I have these moments of like, oh, you're so knowledgeable. This is amazing. And I get to ask questions. And um, a lot of the conversation that we have in this episode is philosophical like Amanda was saying, and then we come back to practical as well. There is a good balance, but just pace yourselves, teacher friends out there. Um, but Jeff has devoted his professional career to helping teachers help their students, and he's particularly devoted to equitably assisting students who are considered to be reluctant, struggling, or at risk, and we talk about these things absolutely head on. Amanda, why don't you give us a little intro to Chris, and then we're going to get started with this epic that we call episode number 34. So Chris is actually the one who reached out to us in the first place. We, we got connected through um, the episode where we interviewed Dr. Anindya Kundu about um, student agency. And so it's kind of cool that that's where we connected was through that episode. Um, and Chris is a classroom teacher. He's taught all across the board. He's taught um, as an English learner, paraprofessional. He's taught third and fourth grade. He's taught adult ESL. He's been a science teacher at a migrant summer school. He was a literacy coach, a Title I co-teacher, and currently he's working in a U.S. history classroom at the high school level. 
So he's really been all over the place. Um, and Jeff and Chris, they met um, at the Boise State Writing Projects Invitational Summer Institute. And so, um, you know, Jeff's really been a mentor to Chris and, and looked out for him and worked with him. And they've co-authored this book together. And um, it's just really cool to hear their perspectives because they're, they're the great pairing that Marie and I hope to be for you guys too. Um, and we hope that this, this episode inspires you guys to take on and tackle the process of inquiry curriculum and a little at a time as we talk about in the episode. It's not about rehauling everything all at once, but taking the challenge, meeting it head on, and little by little, just working harder every day to be better at our profession and make things more equitable for our students. Absolutely. Yes. We talk about the continuum that is being a professional educator, that the work is never done and it's not because the kids are insatiable, but it's because education is ever changing and humans are ever changing. And we talk about that quite a bit. Um, so like we said, grab a notebook, maybe <laughs> a large glass of water if you're going to sit down and do this in one fail swoop. Otherwise, you can always come back. And we talk about a bunch of references, including their new book, which is out right now. Um, so make sure that you check the show notes so that you can find those references or if there's anything you need to get back to, you have questions about that sort of thing. It will all be in the show notes. Let's get started, shall we? Amanda, are you cue, ready? Cue that music. Let's do it. listening to Brave New Teaching, a podcast for educators challenging the status quo. I'm Amanda, and I'm a high school English teacher in Illinois. And I'm Marie, and I'm also a high school English teacher in Southern California. We're so glad you're here. Enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by our free masterclass down with the reading quiz, formative assessments for a new generation. We want to invite you guys, our listeners, the Brave New Teaching community to join us for this 45 minute or so masterclass and Q&A session for free where we can take a really hard look at formative assessments, how they are serving our classrooms, our curriculum, and our students. And Amanda wants to tell you a little bit more about it. Listen, you guys, this masterclass is a must attend. If you are a brand new teacher and you're looking for ideas to create formative assessments for the curriculum that you've inherited, it's also a must attend if you're a veteran teacher and you're ready for ideas that are going to shake up what you've been doing forever with reading quizzes and other formative assessments. So new vet, this is for you. It's also for you if you are the teacher right now working so hard to create more equity in your classroom and you're taking a hard look at your grade book and trying to figure out like, what am I really measuring here? Is this measuring progress or am I measuring behavior? This masterclass will help you sort that out. And of course, if you're just looking for some new creative ideas, this masterclass is for you too. We're going to take you through some of our favorite types of assessments, show you how they work, give you examples, and just get you ready to go for a fresh start in your head in terms of formative assessments and what they can do for your classroom. 
So if you head to www.curriculumrehab.com slash assessment dash masterclass, you can find the date and time that works best for you and for your schedule. We'll even give you a workbook that goes along with it. You grab yourself a cup of coffee, a glass of wine, a bourbon. I mean, really, it's up to you, whatever it is that floats your boat. Join us for this masterclass with a Q&A session afterwards. We can't wait to work with you once again. That website is curriculum rehab.com slash assessment dash masterclass, or just head to the show notes for this episode and you will find the link there. Thank you so much. Let's get back into the episode. All right, everyone, we are here and ready to start this interview. I'd like to introduce to you all Jeff and Chris. Gentlemen, could you guys introduce yourselves to our listeners? I'm Chris Butts. I'm a U.S. history teacher at Frank Church High School in Boise, Idaho. I'm Jeff Fulham. I'm a professor at Boise State University, the director of the Boise State Writing Project, and I'm a thinking partner and co-teacher for reading and literacy intervention classes in the schools. And we are so pumped to have you guys. As you heard in our introduction, Jeff and Chris are all about the world of inquiry and bringing this into the classroom. And so Marie and I really are just going to kind of get this conversation started with you know, a very, I, I wish we could actually see it. Maybe we'll need to stage this photo eventually, but I, I kind of want us to do an audio version of a before and after picture, right? So there's a lot of teachers listening who are in a very traditional mode of going about their day with a novel, uh, some reading questions, and an assessment at the end. Or depending on the subject area, maybe something different, but really kind of driven through either a skill or a text. So I kind of wanted to picture, you know, what does a before and after experience look like for teachers that have gone from not really understanding inquiry instruction and then embracing it and then what their classroom looks like after? Yeah, to kind of tack on to what Amanda's saying, we have a lot of listeners and even followers on like Instagram who have said, you know, I thought I knew what inquiry was and I thought I was using quote unquote essential questions, but I was really just asking questions that were content driven and content based and realizing that they were not truly essential. They were just questions. <laughs> so, and, and I can say in like earlier in my career, and by that I mean I'm in year 14, so probably like year 11, I was kind of still in that. I was stuck a little bit in that, well, I'm asking a question and it's a big question, but it was so specific to Julius Caesar that like it wasn't really doing the work of true inquiry and inquiry-driven curriculum. So I'm so excited to hear like, yeah, like Amanda saying, what's kind of the before, maybe somebody like, you know, former Marie, and then that transformation happens. What does it look like after? I would like to make kind of a brief comment and then turn it over to Chris. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that I'm deeply empathic with teachers in the best of circumstances. You know, I go into schools and it's like getting sucked into a soul tsunami. And, you know, and it's overwhelming that we're asked to do so much uh, and meet, you know, 180 different kids' needs every day, uh, not to mention their, our colleagues, their parents, et cetera. And, of course, it's especially overwhelming right now. And when things are overwhelming, we tend to go back to what's easiest. It's just a very natural human tendency and we also tend to do what was done to us, uh, which in most cases, you know, American education, according to reviews by people like George Hillox, is dominated by information-driven teaching. It's the simplest thing to do, and it's kind of a default. 
Um, and the way schools are structured kind of encourage it. And, and I think even more so today. So I'm deeply empathic about that. On the other hand, if you're doing guided inquiry and have been doing it before the pandemic and are doing it now, then you're so happy. You're on your knees thanking the great animating spirit of the universe every day because <laughs> even though it's harder in some ways, it's once you get it, it's easier. Your life is easier. You, you can be more nimble. You can uh, be more flexible. You know, th there's ways to extend the learning and adapt to learning that are quite natural to the inquiry. The other thing I wanted to say is that we've taken to calling essential questions existential questions. And the reason is, is to foreground that if there isn't a personal and social disciplinary connection, and if the question doesn't lead to rethinking, you know, big ideas and big ways of doing things, you know, big ways of thinking, knowing, and doing uh, that will affect our personal lives and our social lives and our disciplinary work, then it's not an essential question. So that's just kind of a little edge that we use to try to make sure that the essential question isn't fake. Chris, tag. <laughs> Thank you for that that brief response, Jeff. Um, <laughs> Dude, you know, because you know, know me, that was brief for me. I know. Uh, we, I guess, you're in good company. <laughs> I guess the three differences I think about in my classroom are the before, uh, the, the, you know, the, that depth of knowledge tends to be low level. Uh, the types of answers you're looking at are kind of similar, and the learning is largely disconnected. Uh, so that's what you're talking about with things like worksheets and stuff like that, where it's kids are just kind of spitting back the same, you know, level one, level two questions back to you. Mm -hmm. And you have like a multiple guess sheet and you just kind of, it's all the same thing. Uh, and, and this is kind of where for me, what gets like, this is kind of one of my litmus tests is if it's interesting for me to grade, then I'm on the right track, you know? And so those tasks, instead of being low level, they're high level because I'm having kids produce stuff and we're looking at complex like complex texts in a bunch of different ways. So as a history teacher, you know, half of my week each week is you guys are producing histories. So whether it's like a quick flip grid or a Google slide, like storybook type thing, like you are historians, you are creating knowledge. Um, and then with that, those answers are diverse. So you, you pick what you think is the most important cause of the American Revolution or a perspective we should, you know, pay attention to now or where, where we see connections now. So I'm not seeing the same answers to, to the question. Like Jeff said, they're existential. There's stuff that if I get on history.com or whatever website I'm on where a bunch of historians are weighing in, they're all debating it. Um, and then the last part is just that it's connected. Like, you know, what I've been really trying to work on is with my assignments is, I've got a bunch of low-level ones where I'm helping them kids get and acquire the stuff they need to know about something, but it all goes together to help that production piece. And I think that's been the biggest help for me now and always is that, it, like I think you were saying like before we got on, Amanda, is it's not just, you know, trying to like scramble and put all in, throw all the stuff together. I've got some really good tasks. It's going to take students some time to do it. And then I can plan the next thing while we're like building this task together. Yeah, you guys both mentioned this idea of connectedness. And I think when when 
we kind of sell this idea of inquiry to teachers and we try to talk about it. You know, inquiry sounds so focused on just questioning, but really I think what people don't see at the beginning of this process is that that question is what creates connectedness and, um, you know, that path that guides us toward an answer that feeling of connection. I feel it even more now in a remote situation than I even did in my classroom. Um, and that's just, that just, I think speaks to its power. Um, so, and then I, w- I really kind of want just to follow up with that. You know, Jeff, you brought up this idea of, of inquiry being more difficult or that we revert to something that's easier. What is it about inquiry instruction that is harder than what we've done before? Um, what would you guys say are, are kind of the touchstones or the pieces that make it a difficult switch at the beginning? Okay. Um, for people who might be watching the video, I'm going to share my screen. And for those who just have audio, I'll read it. I'm working with a literacy, with several literacy intervention teachers. So they're teaching kids in ninth and 10th grade that are scoring two grade levels or more below um, on reading and writing, below their grade level. And when we began brainstorming uh, a unit on vaping, they came up with this essential question. What are the three major reasons that vaping is bad for teen health? Now, if you're into essential questions, you'll know this is a fake essential question. It's an information-driven question. It's totally content-driven. And you're basically playing guess what the teacher already knows. So we applied what's called a grasp. And actually, we devised this, and it's in our book, to create culminating projects. But we found that it actually works quite well with thinking about essential questions. So you see you have your goal. You have a real-world role. So you're creating this agentive identity that people play out in the real world, a a real-world audience, a story situation, so a context of use, and then a product or performance. Well, what happened is they revised the question to this taking the perspective of a health professional, especially concerned about the health of teens today, what are the most dangerous aspects of the culture of vaping and what can we do about this? Notice they're positioned with what's called the mantle of the expert as someone who has the authority or who can develop the authority to agentively weigh in on the issue. They've got a perspective concerned about the health of teens today Uh, They're actually casting a wide net. Although we're looking at vaping, we're more widely looking at cultures that encourage negative behaviors. And we've got this very agentive existential thing. What can we do about this? You know, personally, socially, uh, et cetera. So you can see that the first question is way easier to ask and to answer. (laughs) You know, the second one actually is way harder to craft. Uh, It requires a lot of expertise, and it requires much, much more expert teaching. You know, uh, one of the things we do in our book is we compare traditional units that teachers have taught with what they then revise these units to when they go to guided inquiry uh, and use what we call the empower model of guided inquiry and cognitive apprenticeship. And I think it's worth mentioning that Inquiry means different things to different people. And to a lot of people, it kind of means, you know, set the kids loose and do whatever you want. Um, that's pretty easy. And the research doesn't support it as 
leading to greater expertise and greater understanding and greater engagement. The research that looks at effective teaching treatment, and I'm thinking of the Fred Newman studies, the George Hillock studies, um, the, the studies done at the Program of International Student Achievement, they found that the kind of teaching that works is guided inquiry, where you're actually apprenticing the learners into new ways of knowing, thinking, and doing. So if you're able to see this, this is a civil war unit, and it gets reframed an inquiry into an essential question like, why did the union win the civil war? Which is part of a bigger question, what determines who wins and gets their way in any kind of conflict. Uh, so it really helps you think historically. Goals in the traditional unit are some retention of factual knowledge about the Civil War, but in the inquiry unit, the guided inquiry unit, is understanding and transfer. So you're being apprenticed into historical enthusiasms and thinking, and therefore you're being inducted into the community of practice of doing history. You're developing grounded theory and threshold knowledge about causes, effects, and results of conflict and warfare. You're able to analyze primary historical data and theorize from it as a novice historian, making predictions about current and future conflicts, excitement about history. So you can see that's a way bigger goal, you know, and it's going to be harder to achieve. Front-loading in traditional is really none or maybe a pretest, but in the inquiry, you're brainstorming causes of conflicts. You're ranking those most likely to cause a war. You're brainstorming advantages to be sought. You're ranking those most likely to determine outcomes. So you're really activating what you already know, already care about. You can connect it to personal conflicts in your own life, things you're seeing in current events. And then the Civil War suddenly becomes alive. It's something connected to your personal life, but also your history. The organization in a traditional model is it's teacher-led. Everyone does the same thing. In inquiry, the, the teacher guides explorations of various topics. Uh, small groups and then individuals eventually divide up and take ownership of various aspects. That's what we call the extend phase. Um, you know, there's a lot of thinking on your feet. What do the kids know? What can they already do? What can we leave? And, and what are they struggling with? What, what do they need next? Who needs to be in a small group? What's good for everybody? Instructional activities are textbooks, readings, worksheets, lecture, and a traditional model. But in inquiry, the walkthrough, the apprenticeship is going to be historical simulations, drama, action strategies that put learners in the positions of combatants, politicians, citizens, and slave people to develop perspective and social imagination. There's going to be a lot of jigsawed, jigsawed small group inquiry. You're going to be giving kids lots of deliberate practice in analyzing data, creating interpretations, making visual um, presentations, etc. The kind of things you do in real life. Questions are usually factually oriented. Linda Gambrell's done so much research on this that in textbooks and classrooms, way over 90% of the questions are factual. But in inquiry, you're asking interpretive, evaluative, and applicative kinds of questions. The kids learn to ask their own questions to each other. Discussion formats in a traditional classroom are IRE, the teacher initiates, learners responds, teacher evaluates. It's very different in inquiry. The learners bring questions to class. You pursue a lot of small group discussions like Socratic seminar. Reading materials in inquiry are no longer the textbook. It's The textbook might be a reference, but you're using primary documents, diaries, battle accounts. Um, an assessment in the traditional is usually a quiz or exam where in guided inquiry, it's daily deliverables, formative assessments, procedural feedback. Maybe you write a written argument about why, why the union won the war or what can help the South win. Um, then you apply your findings to a different war, a different conflict. You do multimedia presentations and there's ongoing reflection and procedural feedback. So it's very, very different, way more complex. 
Now, we had a kid who went through this unit who was kind of a goof off, seventh grade boy. Uh, you know, he, we didn't even know he was paying attention. And in 11th grade, he's doing American history and they're doing World War I. And he raises his hand in the middle of a lecture and says to his teacher, hey, the Germans lost because they ran out of sausages. And the teacher goes, what are you talking about? He goes, it's attrition, man. It's attrition. It's just like the Civil War. We studied that in seventh grade. And so the teacher goes, who remembers anything from seventh grade? And, and he said, the kid like talked about how the South had the best generals, they had the best strategy, they were more aggressive, they, you know, <laughs> and, and they lost because they ran out of sausages. You know, there was a blockade. And he remembered all these facts, but more importantly, he had a theory of attrition that he could apply to history. And that's what happens in inquiry. The kids develop these enthusiasms, they develop this transferable, deep-seated knowledge that's conceptual and procedural that they can apply. So that was a very long answer to your question. I'm sure Chris is quite pleased. Chris, I hand it over to you. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd say the, the challenges I'm facing right now in the classroom are, and just when you, when you shift from traditional to inquiry in general, is with text. Um, and I've been in a bunch of different contexts, elementary, high school, and I'm doing U.S. history now, finding texts that are appropriate, generative and and you have to really tailor your text to the product you want kids to make so that usually means you're not pulling from your textbook like jeff was saying so that that's some extra work you got to do on your own and just kind of be okay with yourself that it's you know this year maybe you build one text that next year you build a new one or you you start with something small like i'm doing different strands through the american revolution right now and i was able to build like a mini set for like an african-american perspective a woman's perspective um, and then like, you know, a white that doesn't own land, but I was like, in my head, I was like, what about Native Americans? What about this? What about that? And I just, I just put the offer out to my students and I said, hey, if you don't, like, these are your choices. If you want option D, come to me, we'll build it together, we'll figure it out. But I also like gave myself the grace that like, I'll get started with this. Next year, I can, I can add that perspective on. And then for me, the, the authentic products is so, it, it's hard in general. And there's a a great article, I can't, I'll, I'll try to send it to you guys for the show notes about the spectrum of authenticity. And that really helped me kind of like build my mental model thinking about that, that like not everything has to be 100% authentic, but that's what we're working toward. And as long as we're working toward that, we're like on the right track. So, you know, my, this year, my goal was for my students to produce a history podcast. We're not there yet, but we're like, we're trying to get like a really good flip grid down. Cause I know that if I can download the audio, I can string that together and we can put something together. So that's kind of like what's been like, I've been struggling with personally. I guess the last one too is student driven questions because especially in the content areas, you're just like, this is the stuff we got to get through. We don't have time for you to do that. But I know, I know from experience, the more student interest I can get. And I'm, I'm starting to pull that into my priming activities of, you know, show me what you know already. What would you like to know more about? And then trying to pull that that into to my instruction. I'd like to uptake what Chris said, that, you know, traditional instruction is what Bakhtin calls authoritative discourse. And the teacher is the authority and the keeper of knowledge. That's actually a pretty tough position to be in. 
you know, and, and it means we're supposed to know more than the kids. The guided inquiry model repositions us. Sure, we know more than them, but it's about how to learn. And we're positioned as collaborative participants in the community of practice. And that means that what we teach has to be internally persuasive to us and to the students. It has to be immediately compelling to them. It has to be transformative and be able to change their mind. One of the great things about this is that you're not going it along alone. You're a collaborative participant, not only with your students, but with other colleagues. And we have these little inquiry groups in different schools. And it's so much fun to see them working together and thinking about things. Uh, for instance, in one of the classes I'm in, the teacher just says, hey, this is a new unit. Uh, one of your assignments is going to be what she calls search and destroy. You know, go out and find some stuff about this inquiry topic that you think we all should read. And so the kids get involved in finding the materials. And because in inquiry, you're very transparent about what you're doing, and the teachers will share what it is you're trying to do in the process of doing it, the kids can be involved in improving the process, and, and colleagues can be involved in it too. So it just makes things way more lively, way more collaborative, way more interesting and transformative. So I would say to people learning inquiry, get a thinking partner. You know, it's kind of like having a running buddy. It's so easy when the alarm rings in the morning to just turn it off if you don't have a commitment to somebody. But if you've got somebody waiting for you at 5.30 a.m. to run, you're going to get up. So if you form these little inquiry groups and even form them with your kids, um, then, you know, I've seen kids like call teachers and go, that's totally information driven, you know, and like, oh, my bad. Okay, how do we transform this? And the kids are learning these very deep processes as well. You know, one of the things that I found that's hardest for teachers is that inquiry is actually a model and it has a lot of different steps. You know, it's a, it's a complex mental model. And if you miss a step, things can go awry. That doesn't mean things weren't successful, things weren't learned, but uh, I'm sharing my screen now. This is a chart we have in our book, Planning Powerful Instruction, and it's also on the cover, on the inside cover. And you can see it says every step is essential. So when an educator does not envision, in other words, articulate clearly and transparently the goals, uh, then the instruction can be aimless and the kids' learning can be aimless. When an educator does not map, in other words, sequence instruction to figure out how can we move the learners from where they are now to where they need to be to develop new capacities that are in their zone of proximal development, new ways of thinking, knowing, doing, then the teacher will be overwhelmed and the kids will be overwhelmed too. When an educator does not prime, in other words, activate what the kids already know and care about, which are the only resources you have to teach somebody something new, they'll be disconnected from the learning. And that's where essential questions come in and those culminating projects where you position the kids as agents. When an educator does not orient, in other words, highlight the purposes and the payoffs to the learner personally, as well as socially, culturally, in terms of the discipline, the learning will be unmotivated. If you don't walk through, if you don't actually provide deliberate practice that really goes deep on some really essential capacity, concept, procedure, then the kids will remain unskilled. They'll remain where they were. If you don't have this extension where you're differentiating and asking the kids to apply what they've learned to a a similar but different kind of issue. Like in our vaping unit, they had to find another 
challenge to teen health and apply everything they learned to that. And one of the things we said was your reward for doing so well is now you get to do it again on your own. Uh, you know, and then there's a new challenge. They have to achieve transfer and they have to bring back what they learned to everybody else. So you have this community of practice. And if you don't reflect throughout and name what you know and how you know it and how you can justify it, then you're remaining independent or dependent. You know, you're not developing your own mental models that are transferable to other situations. I, I think that that answer, those answers right, are, are so powerful in answering the question of why is this so hard? And I think to, to Chris, to your point, what Jeff just went through, I think to someone who's new, they're, they're crapping their pants right now. Like why? Yeah. <laughs> right. But, but like being on the other side, you, if you guys are watching the video, you see Marie and I are like, my head is a bobblehead yeah. because you have to do what, what Chris said. You have to give yourself the grace, the patience, and the time of tackling this one unit at a time. You've got to do like what Jeff said. You've got to find your running buddy and, and do this with someone. You know, Marie and I are trying really hard to be that person for a lot of you because um, Jeff and Chris, like, you know, some, a lot of our listeners find themselves working in some really rural communities. I have listeners who have told me, I am the English department for ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade by myself. You know, we've had, you know, teachers who are working in schools that are full of teachers, but none that really are interested in collaboration. So, you know, trying to navigate your way through all of the things that we're just kind of getting at here, it really is challenging when you're either on your own or you're trying to do too much too fast. And, or and that's, yeah, you Marie. find yourself where we are right now, where Amanda and I really are trying our hardest. Well, first of all, we're each other's running buddies and we live on opposite sides of the country. So there's that. So like that kind of gives hope at least to the teachers who are listening or watching right now. It's not, we're not completely isolated even when it feels that way. And that is the beauty of the internet, right? And like 24 seven connectivity. But at the same time, the thought, I, I already know because I can see it through my colleagues and my friends' eyes the idea of feeling like you have to redo everything and we're in the middle of a pandemic. Like if you really take today into context, right? Like we're in the middle of a pandemic, I'm teaching from home. I have my own kids around. I can barely even get through quote unquote, get through my content. Um, and that's okay. Right? Like, like Chris was saying, take one unit, take one unit this year. Those kids will benefit immensely from it. And then next year, the kids you have will benefit even more and it grows exponentially from there. But it is so stinking hard, especially when you find yourself in a climate like we have right now where educators are under fire. Like I feel this defensiveness of myself, my craft, my class, even though I'm personally not taking very many hits, I'm pretty open and transparent, whatever. Yay me. Who cares, right? But like a lot of teachers are taking a lot of hits lately, a lot of schools, a lot of administrators, a lot of educators, period, because that just seems to be where we are. So then you think to yourself, am I really going to pour more of my heart and soul into something that's hurting me so much? I mean, yeah, that's, that's kind of what we do, right? Like we, we don't become teachers for the money, I hope. 
somebody has not been led astray in that way. We become teachers because that's our educators, period, because education is so intoxicating and working with students is so fulfilling, even when it also bleeds you dry at the same time. And this methodology that you are describing and that you have done so much deep work into unfolding for us is like it lit me back up as a teacher. I was trying to leave the profession like five years ago, six years ago, because I was like, I can't do this anymore. And then slowly but surely things that I had learned about, like using inquiry and explorative activities and teaching students how to learn rather than just teaching them a bunch of crap, (laughs) but teaching them how to do it themselves went, oh gosh, that's why 22 year old me was so gung ho. As if a, you guys you know. felt goosebumps when Jeff was going through that Civil War unit, I was yeah. getting goosebumps. I, I, that's, and that's the reward. It, it is a Absolutely. lot of transfer. Like you've really got to work at it and give yourself time, but the reward is mighty. You know, we've been talking quite a bit about how guided inquiry requires more expertise uh, and that it requires, you know, developing that expertise over time. But I want to point out that It's easier in many ways because it's more engaging for the students and because you're going to spend less time grading because you're not doing quizzes and tests and things like that. You're working toward a culminating project and the kids are creating these deliverables every day, but you can look at them in class and they're sharing them with each other. And, you know, and so I take way less uh, grading home And I'm spending more time on my planning, which is more fun for me and I think has a way bigger payoff for the kids. And I'm having way, way, way more fun in class. And that's what I hear from teachers again and again. I'm working with an earlier career teacher who said the other day, I'm never going back. You know, the pandemic made her move toward inquiry. And already, you know, after 12 weeks or whatever, she's saying, I'm not going back. You know, and I want to talk about that teacher professionalism thing, too. And Chris will recognize this because we talk about it a lot in our Boise State Writing Project site. It's changing one-tenth a year. And this comes from the National uh, Math Teachers Association. And they had an article several years ago that was like, change one-tenth a year. And the argument was that changing more than that's probably going to be overwhelming, but changing less than that's unprofessional. That, you know, you should be on a track of continuous improvement. And because they're math teachers, they apply the rule of 72, which means if you change everything, or if you change 10% a year, in seven years, you've changed everything. And think about that. What if you're completely transforming your instruction every seven years? That's pretty professional. That's a path of continuous improvement. You know, I agree with you that teachers entered the profession because of their deepest values, their deepest commitments, their deepest hopes for their learners, the future themselves. And being a professional means you're continually honing your capacity to serve those deep values and desires and commitments. And so it's, it's just very, very important. One last story about Washington County, Maine. Washington County, Maine was a place where I ran a national demonstration site in guided inquiry across the curriculum. And at the time we did it, it was the third poorest county in the United States. It, It may still be. And we were working at these small rural schools and teachers were like, exactly what you said, I'm the English department. I, I, and so we started brainstorming with ways to do it. 
And Jonesport Beals High School, which is this tiny little fishing village in Washington County, Maine, the teacher said, could I do an inquiry for all four grades? We're like, why not? Right? Because what are the standards now? The standards are ways of doing things, not curriculum and, or not content. And so she did this inquiry throughout the year. It wasn't the only thing she did, but she did this inquiry throughout the year about the lobster catch. And it turned out that there were lobstermen who lived there who had been keeping very careful records since the 1930s. And they wouldn't share it with Noah or any of the federal researchers because they didn't trust them. But they trusted the kids. And so the kids said, could you share the data with us? Because we'd like to analyze it, make a case about, you know, for the good of our community, right, about what's the most productive way to manage the lobster catch. And so they had this really vital inquiry that lasted like four years, and it was what every 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th grader did. You know, like I said, it wasn't the only thing they did, but it was a major thing they did. Well, think about that. Now she's got one prep instead of four. Now everybody in the community has become a teacher and a a collaborative thinking partner. So, you know, we can think outside the box if we get outside that traditional way of construing curriculum as information prevail. And all of a sudden, everything becomes possible. It's so cool because it also, like, to think of how difficult it can be for really anybody (laughs) to admit, I don't know. It can be, it can be, for some people, it's much more difficult, right? There's a gradient to it. But to admit, I need help on this. But to flip that and say, you know what? I would like to collaborate because there are things you know and will think of that I don't know. And there are things I know and will think of that you don't know. And to kind of pose that in a way where, like, I like what you said about the whole community became teachers. And in a world where it feels like we are all living and breathing and operating in a vacuum, to open up that opportunity for connection amongst generations uh, between different content areas, even if you go really small to like the school. It's just so, it gives gives me a lot of hope. I don't know about you guys (laughs) and everybody listening. It gives me a lot of hope. Um, I have actually a question because we're talking about the changeover and like I, we've sort of talked about getting started and just like, you know, doing, like you said, one tenth every year. I would like to ask you guys, what sorts of missteps have you seen educators take when including inquiry into their curriculum, either all like all at once or like, what have you seen as missteps or mistakes? And then I want to follow that up with how would you suggest, especially to teachers designing a curriculum, right? After they've made XYZ misstep, how could they course correct? whether it's in the moment or like for next year. (laughs) Chris. Sorry, there I was on mute. Um, um, I'm just going to, I'm speaking from my own personal experience here. So just going to put that out there. Um, Like kind of like what Jeff talked about. Some people will like, I call it like drink the Kool-Aid and they're like, this is the best thing ever. And like you said, the first misstep is trying to change more than 10%. Um, and especially now, you know, we think about things and, and we bring this up in the book, this idea of conscious competence and, and conscious incompetence. So conscious competence is, you know what you're doing and you can name it. And we were all, you know, experienced teachers for the most part. That's where we were at pre-pandemic. And now that we're online, there's, we know what we're supposed to do. We're conscious of it. 
but we're incompetent because we don't know how to teach hybrid or whatever. And so we're like totally getting these, like we've been getting this feedback of like, I know what I'm doing and I'm and like, things are working out the way they're supposed to be, but to just stop and, and step back and go, especially doing inquiry now is that like you are already probably changing 10% or more. So to kind of like contextualize all that, I think in the amount that you're changing and in, in the, in the way you're trying to do it. Um, another one is not including reflection before, during and after. This is like a thing for me always and forever is to just, and in terms of course correcting it is to like, do whatever you can to bake it into your, your schedule or your plan or whatever. For me, what I'm doing now is every Friday we do, I have like just kind of a scripted, you know, like what like type of reflection questions of like, what made sense to you today? How did your thinking change? What questions do you have for me? Now take a stab at the essential question and include some evidence for it. And that's just like part of our Friday routine. Like every Friday we will do this because like Jeff said, without that reflection, there's no, there's no transfer. And then I'd say the last one is like going, and I've worked with like curriculum development too, is like typically I see units that are overambitious. We're going to do like 45 different things and it's all going to connect and we're going to like write the great American novel and like in intention, it is beautiful and I love it. And, and this is probably just a personal thing of myself of being an opportunist and trying to tie it all together and synthesize it and really scaling it back and, and trying to flip that, that perspective of like, I'm going to try and plan the world's smallest unit. And then as I go along, I'm going to find all these things I'm going to want to add on and, and give myself that space and ability to do that because it's like a Murphy's law thing where it's like inevitably you run out of time and you're like, well, wow, that, that happened again. Like big surprise. <laughs> Guilty <Yeah. laughs> right here. <laughs> you, know, you know, everybody who's done this has gone on similar journeys, you know, and it's kind of like the hero's quest. You know, you're going to have to fight the dragons and you're going to have to go to the underworld and you're going to have to, you know, fight the desire to quit. And, you know, to me, the, the biggest obstacles are first just getting started. And, you know, what Chris said reminded me that when I did my first inquiry unit, it was three days. You know, I was a seventh grade teacher. Uh, I was on a teaching team and I convinced them, let's do a three-day unit, you know. And, and we did it and it was good. And then the next unit was a week, you know. And then within a few years, we were doing everything through inquiry, but we started small. you know. And it, Doing an inquiry-oriented lesson is, is a great start. And in our book, we have, you know, I think 70 different possible lessons that you could use for the different stages of Empower. And you could just do that and see how it works. You know, if the kids are enthusiastic and energized, then, well, how might you build on that? But I think the first problem is just getting started and choose a goal that's doable. It's the same thing you do for a kid. What's the zone of proximal development? What's something you know you'd actually do? Set that goal and do it. Then set a new goal. You know, if you want to run a marathon and you haven't been training, you don't start off with a 10-mile run. You know, you, you probably start off with a mile run walk, you know, and then as you get stronger and no more, you move on. I think another problem is doing inquiry, but trying to position yourself the same way as the authority and the holder of all knowledge. And what you were talking about earlier is a prime move of inquiry to say, I don't know, or I'm not sure. What can we do? 
How can we move forward? You know, what can we read? What resources do we have? How could we collect our own data? You know, it may be true there, but is it true here? You know, it's always posing those questions. It's always being uncertain. It's always posing that Eleanor Duckworth question, what if it were otherwise? Or under what conditions might I think differently? You know, um, and I think that's an act of social imagination and disciplinary imagination that we need very much right now. Um, you know, and I think another thing that's that's a big challenge is, you know, just not enlisting other people to help us. You know, not enlisting colleagues, not enlisting the students, not... Um, you know, asking them to help with this big project and to be part of it, because that's what a community of practice is. It's people working together toward a common goal. Um, you know, I wanted to tell the story when I was teaching seventh grade, we were doing an inquiry unit uh, into, um, it, was, it was around the dinosaurs and animal adaptations and things like that. And this, this one kid, you know, he wanted to do something on the dinosaurs. And it was, you know, I'm old enough that this was early days of the internet. And so I said, try to find somebody to help you. I don't know about this thing. You know, I, I got, I got no background in paleontology. So he goes, Hey, I found this guy. I go, great. And he didn't tell me who it was. Right. And, and he's going back and forth with the guy and he goes, Oh, I got some good, good data here, man. And so I said, well, who's your contact? He goes, Paul Serino. Well, Paul Serino was the head paleontologist at the Field Museum in Chicago. I'm like, what? So here's the seventh grader who's developed this relationship with Paul Serino. And that's what happens when, you, you know, particularly now, if you just say, hey, I don't know, but who might? Who can help us? Who are our resources? What are our resources? Uh, and then cast a wide net. I found that 50% of experts out there will answer a kid. That's a pretty good rate of return. And then the kids, you know, develop this notion of the world that there are people out there who will help me think about things, which is cool. I have a question for both of you, and this might catch you off guard. And so I apologize, but not enough to not ask the question. <laughs> have you found that students are, especially secondary students, right, who are pretty well trained in the traditional model of education of I learn it. I jump through the hoop, I land on two feet, I get an A, right? Um, have you found that they are resistant to this model? <laughs> Hashtag asking for a friend. It's totally not happening in my classroom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, this is, it's an interesting question, and I've actually researched it. And um, one of the things we found in our boy studies that I did with Michael uh, Smith and their engagement or lack of it with literacy in their lives and in classrooms was that the kids who most loved inquiry were the kids who struggled the most in school. Because all of a sudden you changed these rules that never made sense to them. And all of a sudden it became what one boy called toolish instead of schoolish. You know, they could see the real world application. Now those kids wanted to be more competent, but school wasn't making them more competent. And that was the source of their resistance. And so when things were framed in such a way that it was clearly making them more competent in their life, they embraced it because nobody wants to be incompetent. When kids resist, it's not because they don't want to be engaged. They don't want to be uh, more competent. It's because they don't think they're going to get the help they need to be more competent or they don't see the use of 
learning this thing you're teaching. And that's part of the envisionment that we talk about in our book and the priming and orienting is being internally persuasive to kids. that There's a purpose and payoff here for you. And you can immediately apply this in your own life and you can immediately use it in your own life, but also in the future. Now, we also found in this study that the kids who were most likely to resist were the students who were highly successful at school. Because they would say things like, uh, can't we do worksheets anymore? And I remember saying to a girl named Molly, I said, find me on Craigslist where it says worksheet filler outer wanted and we'll do it. You know, because my point was we're learning about things that are going to help you in your life, not things that are only good in school. But we found even with them, like once they became assured, look, you're going to get the help you need to be successful. And this is not a, a game of gotcha. This is a game of everybody developing the deepest engagement and capacity they can. They would come on board. Uh, the kids in the great middle, they were easier to convince than the kids who were successful at school, but uh, a little slower than the kids who uh, were resistant. So anyway, yeah, there's resistance. And, you know, teaching is an act of faith. I think you have to be willing to stick with it over time. You have to say, I believe in this because believe me, there's going to be bumps. And if you don't have a deep commitment and support and a way forward, it'll be easy to quit. Um, in, in my context, uh, I, I have to pitch the sale really hard at, at my site because we're, we're a place where a lot of students were traditional classroom environments aren't working. So like Jess said, to, for a kid to even pick up a pencil, I've really got to make the case of like, this is worth your time. <laughs> um, or they're just, they won't show up, they won't do it. They're like very skilled at forms of asserting their agency basically and saying, nope, this isn't like, I don't see the value, I'm out. You know, I don't have that compliance necessarily built in with some of them. So I think like Jess said, the priming is so key to get them engaged, to see the real world connection to see that they have something to say about this topic. Like I've been having so much fun with opinionaires this year and throwing them at them and saying, okay, what do you think you know about West African civilizations? Okay. Now we're going to revisit the same opinionaire at the very end of the quarter or the unit. And you're going to add all this. You're going to re-answer all the questions, but you're going to have knowledge that goes with it now to show that you actually learned something. Um, and then I think with those other students that might be resistant, is the power of clear success criteria. I mean, if there is one crux move that is, for me, like everything I've learned and done in my work with Jeff, it's, it's dog fooding or what we call in the book, access, uh, regress, compress, and assess. It's doing the assignments you ask the kids to do and then providing that as an example for them of this is what I want. Because for those students that love that worksheet life, they know what that looks like. But for those students where you're like, yeah, I'm, you know, you can do a flip grid or you can do a storybook. They're like, well, wait, what does that look like? How do I know I've done it right? Well, I've created that for you. You know, and, and where I grapple is doing it in a way where I'm not giving them a template. They can just straight up copy. So that's also another opportunity where I'll say, hey, I want yours to be about these two topics. I'm going to loop back and do something from before. And I'm about to hear a school announcement. So Good morning, Frank Burke. At this time, teacher, you know, I'd like to, to follow <laughs> up on that. And oh, school? What does school sound yeah. like? I'm yeah, no, sorry, Jeff, go ahead. No, it's, it's fine. Um, yeah, you know, I've got this sign behind my desk that says you will look bad before you look good. And that's true for us as teachers as well as for kids. You know, kids will go, I can't do this. 
And, you know, my mantra is, you can't do this yet. You know, uh, that, and, and I'll say, excellent, now we can learn something. There's something you have to learn. Um, I had a kid the other day said, I suck at this. And I looked at him and he goes, yet. And I go, no, that's, that's not it. You, you, you can't do this yet, but you'll be able to with assistance and help. Um, you know, and we have to embrace that as teachers and embrace that with the kids. You know, I say this a lot when I'm working with teachers. What is it we grade on assignments? The mistakes, the shortcomings. I go, oh, that's motivating. You know, if I went home every night and my wife had a list of all my shortcomings as a husband, I'd be super psyched to be married. You know, what if we named the things they were doing successfully and why that was successful and, and what contributed to the success? That's procedural feedback, which is a crux move of cognitive apprenticeship and guided inquiry. You know, what if we then named, I wonder what would happen if, like we named some ways forward. That's highly motivating to have your effort and your strategy use recognized, um, celebrated, named, you know, because you're saying keep doing this because it works in this way, which is going to lead to further learning. And then when you act, ask, and I wonder what would happen if you're being a thinking partner, you're saying, I'm on your team. I want you to get better. So we've got to stop grading what's wrong or an approximation and see that and celebrate that as a sign of growth. That means the kid tried something they didn't really know how to do yet. That's moving into the zone of proximal development. That, that takes courage. And so we need to celebrate that, embrace that, and use that as the way forward. And we need to grant ourselves the, oh, ourselves the same grace, right? That, hey, that didn't go as well as I wanted. Yeah, that's okay. I was trying something new. And, and own it with the kids. Wow, that didn't go that great. What can we do to improve it? That's modeling being a learner. That's modeling being an inquirer. You know, that's modeling being a civically engaged citizen. I'm so this glad you're so, saying that. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm like, I know I'm going to go back to you in a minute, Marie, for sure. Cause we, we, this conversation comes up a lot in our circle from Marie and I, where, where we are. And one of the things that English teachers, I hear them struggling with is they want this at, at this moment in history. And I think before this, they want to move toward an anti-biased, anti-racist curriculum. We want to move toward decolonizing our curriculum but a lot of English teachers are getting stuck on the idea that that's text only. And what, what I think the work that you guys have done in your book that we will absolutely be linking in the show notes for you, what Marie and I are trying to do with curriculum rehab, what lots of inquiry people are trying to share with the world of teachers is that your pedagogy, your strategy, the way you approach teaching is fundamentally more important than whether or not you get rid of To Kill a Mockingbird. Like that's a fun fight to have or not such a fun fight to have online. Um, but, but the way we deliver our curriculum, the way we ask students to think like Chris is talking about opinionaires, um, you know, sitting kids in the seat of apprenticeship, which is what we're going to get into next, you know, seeing themselves as experts. This is so much deeper, richer, and more transformative for our classrooms than fighting over which novel we're going to teach this year. And it's, it's, hard to acknowledge that because I think that's the easier fight to have because what we're talking about right now takes a lot of commitment, like you guys have said, and, and a lot of uh, willingness to, to, to dig in. Um, but, but what you guys are talking about right now, the success that you've seen, that's equity. 
what, what you're, what you're seeing is we're undoing the rules of school that we set up for certain students to succeed and other students to struggle. And this rethinking is worth our time. I, I know you're going to say something, Marie, but I know we're going to, we have one last question for you guys. No, I mean, you've, you've summed it up really. And, and, and for the, for the kids who are struggling with school and who are struggling with school under traditional content, jump through the hoops model, um, this is a game changer. And it's also a game changer for our kids who are so good at flawlessly jumping through those hoops because that was me. Yes. I'm, <laughs> I'm that kid. I was so good. School was not hard for me until college. And then I had, I had professors asking me really big questions and I had a, a waitress job where I had to like figure things out for myself. And I almost crumbled under, uh, not almost, I crumbled under the pressure <laughs> and it was hard. And I had to like build myself back up because I didn't know how to do this stuff. And I didn't know how to just figure it out because I had always been good at stuff. So it's like, it's the great equalizer of just everybody needs to figure so many of our students, no matter what their <laughs> academic achievement, have this learned helplessness of if I just, if I just get sad enough and whiny enough or, you know, complacent or just like sit there, my teachers will not have time. <laughs> they will figure it out for <laughs> me because time will run out. And so this total flip of the coin to putting the onus on our students to take control of their own lives is such a like, and I'm getting really, I start, I get really like big yes. and I'm talking with my hands for our listeners who can't see me. Like it's a whole thing happening right now. I know, I know Chris, you're, you're, you're the master of teacher Twitter world. Um, I have not mastered that. Well, oh. at least you're there. I'm not even there <laughs> other than when my two friends who are there send me messages. I'm like, Oh yeah, Twitter exists. But you know, Murray and I are kind of in this Instagram world, which is a very, um, misleading and scary place sometimes because a lot of times we put on ourselves the power to transform on our ability to put together a transformative experience for our kids. Like I'm planning right now a Gatsby party for my students. Who's planning it? I'm planning it. Um, and, and part of the experience is for the kids to do some experiencing as well. Um, but I think that this approach, like you guys have said over and over again, puts kids back in the driver's seat. So that, that segues us to, you know, to my final question. And you guys have talked a little bit, you know, here and there about your book, but it sounds like the, the focus of your, your work and the books, th these guys have got two levels, everyone. So there's um, a younger grade and an upper grade version of this same concept, but you guys, I don't know if you've coined it, but the term cognitive apprenticeship, can you guys walk us through with some examples, how that works in terms of inquiry and maybe just some takeaways for our listeners before we say goodbye? Okay. Well, I'll, I want to kind of uptake what's been said before and apply it to this because a major theme of our book is Bakhtin's idea of authoritative versus internally persuasive discourse. And we talk a lot about how, how school is authoritative. You know, it's like the teachers or the curriculum director said, here is the curriculum. It was handed down by Moses on these stone tablets. You must learn it. Well, that's not really inspiring or convincing to anybody, right? Um, so the, the contrast to that is what Bakhtin calls internally persuasive discourse, where you're engaged with problems that matter to you. In English teachers, that's what great literature is. It's an exploration of what Marianne Moore calls the news that stays news. You know, what matters uh, over time to being a human being and, and navigating this journey on the planet. 
the Dorothy Heathcote, the famous drama educator, said there's always a back door and a front door. And if kids are going to be resistant or if something's going to be hard for them, go through the back door. Now, I'm not saying always go through the back door. Michelle Fine is a New York City educator who says you got to address the social problems directly. You know, so she works with African-American kids and she'll ask questions like, why do more African-Americans die in the American military throughout history than, you know, since the Civil War than any other group? You know, and she wants to get after it directly. I work with kids who would be very resistant to that. In fact, I'd get a lot of parent phone calls. So I got to go through the back door, which is kind of what I like to do anyway, which is providing experiences that I'm not mediating that the kids come to their own conclusions. And, and you hope that it will internally persuade them and transform them. You know, and cognitive apprenticeship is about creating those sequence of instruction that will internally persuade and transform students, you know, procedurally, like, yeah, you know, arguments, you need evidence that fits this kind of model. And you need reasoning that connects the evidence to the claim. I mean, it could be internally persuasive in that way, or it could be internally persuasive kind of in a social justice way, like, wow, I might think that if I had grown up like this person I just read about who's distant from me in time, place, and context. You know, so I do think English is a place especially friendly to transformation if, if we choose to take that up. Um, I just want to finish with a personal story uh, because I, I work in a school where the kids are generally quite conservative. Even the safety resource officer has black, Blue Lives Matter and some other things on his wall um, that, I don't know, uh, make me a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and, and I've realized that if I try to play this authoritative thing, like I'm wrong or you're right, and I, or excuse me, I'm right and you're wrong about everything, I'm not going to transform myself. I'm not going to transform my kids. I, you know, that, that's, that gives us nothing. So I've taken up this inquiry with a couple other teachers into how can I understand these people who are different politically than me? And we're reading Arlie Hochschild's book, Strangers in Their Own Land, about uh, conservatism in Charles County, uh, Louisiana. And I'm trying to go in without any alarm bells and just say, I want to understand. And I want to think what might, could have happened in my life that would make me align with them. Because I, I don't think there's any other way for me to transform my understanding. And even though it might be really comfortable to go, I'm right and you're wrong, that doesn't lead to anything. You know, John Dewey said at the end of his career, he was asked by a reporter, can you summarize your career? You know, which is laughable. He's 90 years old. He's the most prolific philosopher and educational theorist in American history. And he goes, oh yeah, democracy is conversation, which means we got to talk to each other. We got to listen to each other. We got to really try to understand each other. And inquiry is about understanding different perspectives and then deciding for yourself tentatively this is where I'm landing right now because of the evidence and because of the felt story and because of my deepest commitments and values. But understanding there are other points of view and that there are reasons for those points of view too. I don't have much to add to that, Jeff, for once. <laughs>
but I would I would just like building on that multiple perspective thing. That's that was the major thing I wanted to emphasize as well. And then with that, just giving students the authority and the space in those culminating projects where they can be critical of something or support something or whatever. Because like you said, if you're just trying to march them down one preordained direction or another. Uh, and I experienced this in my own life, in my own upbringing, it inevitably backfires. You know, the kid immediately wants to walk in the other direction. Um, and just, just thinking about this cognitive apprenticeship, uh, cognitive apprenticeship is kind of a mashup, I guess, of, you know, things like mastery, inquiry, criticality. And, and I think the under, the kind of underlying thing that pulls it all together is that community and social piece that goes with this. And that, that's huge because you see other books out there about all sorts of stuff. But I think a key piece that if you don't have it is where you're going to go wrong is that, that, that community within your classroom and your classroom connecting with the wider community. Because if you want to do any of that kind of anti-bias education, anything, you have to have that groundwork laid first. Otherwise, you're, it's, that defeats like the whole purpose of it, right? I mean, it's about getting out of your perspective and understanding other ones. You know, if you're creating situations where kids can embrace mental models of expertise for themselves and use them independently, you know, then you're creating critical thinkers who are going to be open to various kinds of positions and various kinds of evidence. You know, and that's that back door we're talking about. Uh, I think it's how you transform uh, our culture. It's how you transform people individually and collectively is by developing these basic strategies and skills of expertise that everybody should have access to. Uh, and, you know, and that's really our approach. And in cognitive apprenticeship, you need deliberate practice with expert mental models. And empower is a mental model of how anybody in any field, in any discipline, is inducted into expertise. So it works for social equity. It works for social justice because everybody is then given what they need when they need it uh, to develop expertise and be uh, an equal conversant in the big issues that we're talking about. And then for each level of empower, we have mental models of, you know, how to envision or how to help kids envision. You know, we shared the grasp about how to help kids ask essential questions, how to have kids frame culminating tasks, which we ask them to do in the extend phase. And so now they're an equal partner. They, we've let them in on the secrets. We've made public what experts know and think and do. So it's available to you as my colleague, to me, myself, so I can monitor what I'm doing and to the students and the learners. And that's deeply democratic and that's deeply equitable and that works for social justice through the back door. Well, and I, to kind of start to wrap us up, because this has been, I don't want to stop talking. I don't, <laughs> but um, I would say the, like my biggest takeaway from our entire conversation is that to be able to let students have access to the why behind their education and to give them the power, like, like I love your acronym that it is, that it is empower and that your other acronym grasp like it gives students so much agency and it lets them when they're not our kids no matter how old they are my seven-year-old the 17 year olds that I teach right they don't feel like they quite belong they don't have a seat at the table of their own life just yet and obviously it's different for everybody we have some kids that have a lot of autonomy we have a lot of kids that are very dependent on other people for their well-being and everything um 
but they just honestly, I had a conversation with my sophomore class yesterday. It was the first time I saw them after this 2020 election result happened over the weekend. And I had to say to them, listen, there are a lot of disgruntled and very unhappy people in our country. And on the other side of that, there are a lot of overwhelmingly hopeful people in our country. And it is a huge chasm between the two. And so what you're talking about here, Jeff, is it's a new way, not a new way, it's been done for a long time, but it's, it's a renewed way of, of bringing discourse back to our classrooms as a means of training our little students to be citizens, right? It's training them. I was telling my students yesterday, just because you couldn't vote doesn't mean your opinion doesn't matter. And we were starting a whole media literacy unit. And so I'm saying that's why you matter. They don't think that they matter. And, and, and giving them that agency reminds them that just because you're 15 doesn't mean you're not a person. Your right to vote doesn't make you all of a sudden a person. You, you've always had that and you are part of this community. You're in fact the most important part of this community because you're our children. <laughs> like you're literally the reason we do all of this. So let's remind them of that and give them a little piece of that power. I cannot, Amanda, on behalf of both of us, we cannot thank you both enough We've had a lengthy conversation and we kind of have to wrap it up, but I really appreciate it. Will you both tell us where our listeners can get in touch with you? Chris, you're big on Twitter, eh? <laughs> I am not big on Twitter, but uh, when, when the pandemic hit, that was like a place where I was like, okay, I need to kind of revisit this, this professional learning network. So what is your handle? How could our, how could our listeners get connect with you? At, uh, at cbutts9980 on Twitter. Okay, um, we will have that linked in our show notes below. Jeff, you. where can our listeners get a hold of you and connect? Well, I'm on Twitter at reeddrjwilhelm, and that's reeddrjwilhelm. And you can also email me at jwilhelm at boisestate.edu, and I'm very happy to entertain questions. And I should mention that our books are 30% off through the NCTE conference, if you nice. give the code NCTE2020. So, and I think they're doing free shipping too. So oh, that's excellent. planning powerful instruction, NCTE 2020, um, free shipping from Corwin. And we will have all of that information linked in our show notes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to both of you. We're probably going to need to have just, you know, put it on your calendar. We're going to need to have a follow-up and like, six to eight months. So everybody <laughs> buckle down and get ready for that. Yeah, we would welcome that. Thank you so much. We so appreciate the conversation Thank and you. what you guys are doing more widely <laughs> to promote conversations. Thank you. We love We're it. We're going to keep working together. Thank you guys so much for being here. We'll talk soon, I'm sure. And uh, thanks again. Sounds good. Thank All you, ladies. Best.